The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Benjamin Cohen. He is an environmental historian, chair of engineering studies, and associate professor at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. Dr. Cohen is a prolific writer and serves on the editorial board for MIT Press's History for a Sustainable Future book series. He is the author of Notes from the Ground, Science, Soil, and Society in the American Countryside, and Pure Adulteration, Cheating on Nature in the Age of Manufactured Food, which is the book we will be discussing today. Dr. Cohen received his PhD on the history track of science and technology studies from Virginia Tech, and from 2005 until 2011, he taught in the Department of Science and Technology Studies at the University of Virginia, where he was the founder and director of the University of Virginia Food Collaborative. I am thrilled to have you with me. Welcome, Dr. Cohen. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so so grateful that you want to talk about the book. Absolutely. I think we should start with why you wrote this book. What led you to food adulteration? You've got degrees in history and engineering. Why food and why food adulteration? Thank you for asking. I think the best answer is I had written and done work that became Notes from the Ground, which is a study of the origins of agricultural chemistry. And that work brought me from the 1790s to the 1860s. And I became interested in what happened after that period, once agriculture and chemistry came together as a profession and in many ways as the seedbed for how the USDA, which was founded in 1862, how they they structured what they were going to do. When I got to that next era and started to understand or or read into the post-Civil War period, it took me much closer to food and new markets and new manufacturing processes and a little bit away from agriculture and farming. And that very transition started to fascinate me about what does this mean for how we understand what our food is What does this mean for how we maintain our our trust and faith in a food system, which was rapidly changing and rapidly expanding and rapidly industrializing? So some of the earlier questions I had about how do we know what the soil is? How do we know what the best kind of farming is? These are kind of the, the basic questions of the first book. Led me to more of those knowledge questions. How do people know that their food was what they thought it was? How do people know that the scientific analysis meant something to them. And uh, that's a story that happens in the second half of the century. Mm-hmm. And we're still asking those questions today. But before we get to today, I think we should define adulteration. That's good, too. It's, it is, uh, I think I say at one point in the book, it, it has a very Victorian feel to it, the word. We don't generally use it as much as they used to, adulteration. Adulteration, at least in the way that they talked about it, maybe we still do, refers to contaminated or corrupted or even deceptive foods. Adulteration as uh, proposed to be in opposition to 
impure, something that's not what it says it is. Mm-hmm. And something can get adulterated accidentally. Things can get contaminated along the way. That's not improbable. But things could be intentionally adulterated. They could be they could be spiked with what they would call adulterant, with chemicals or additives that some people think shouldn't be there. And so the end result is to label that or refer to that as an adulterated product. I'm really glad you brought up contaminated because in my notes in preparing for this interview, I was really curious about the differences between those two words. And I was going to ask you if you felt that it would be a fair thing to say that adulterated food is also the same as contaminated food. And I'm glad you also mentioned this idea that there is some honest contamination that occurs like, oh, I didn't realize that the metal pot that I was using was contaminating my food with a metal. But then there's also the purposeful adulteration. And that's really what your book focuses on is just this mindful adulteration, really, of so much of food in history. And I don't know about you, but when I was reading this book and really riveted by your historical data that you pulled forth, I had no idea how widespread food adulteration was throughout history. Were you surprised as well? I was. I had a sense that this wasn't a new phenomenon. So I'm quick to point out, hopefully in the book and when I talk about it, that adulteration or contaminated food, whether it's honest or dishonest, isn't a new thing in the later 1800s, although they called that the era of adulteration. And they named it the Pure Food Crusades, which suggests to some that here's some singular event that is new on this world stage. But as long as we've had food, we've had food adulteration. As long as people have negotiated or tried to sell or handle foods and pass it off from one person to another, there's been some mode of distrust or some mode of contamination. What struck me was that there's something new going on with the rise of manufacturing food in the later 1800s. And that's what becomes different is now people are finding foods that are coming from factories instead of from fields. And they're really exercised about this question of purity, adulteration, but also nature and artifice. So it felt like it was not natural. You know, we use these words so generally. Um, it's natural, it's not natural. Who gets to define that? I didn't want to do the project and claim that I had the answer to that. I wanted to find out what the people at the time thought. And what they were much more motivated by was arguing over purity as a proxy for natural and adulteration as a proxy for artificial something contrived. And surrounding all of those various loose, vague cultural terms was a concern that they just, they couldn't know. Like, what were the means for them to understand? How could they determine if it was pure or adulterated? How could they determine if it was natural? They had to start making new arguments when these things started to come from factories, which in some ways, by definition, is artificial. It's made by humans. It's not from nature. So it must be fake. It must be adulterated. Versus other people saying, I don't know, we might be able to make foods more cheaply. Maybe we could feed more people. Maybe it's more efficient. Why is it necessarily bad if it's from a factory? Hmm. Well, in preparing for this interview, I also went back to some of the interviews that you did. And one of the people you interviewed, gosh, I think this was over a decade ago, was Michael Pollan. And you had a discussion with him about economics. And you even mention this in your book with regard to the role of capitalism and the role that the profit motive plays, or just looking at food buying 
through this economic lens rather than a much broader perspective. So do you think that this fraudulent adulteration is more prevalent in capitalistic societies? It's hard to say if it's more prevalent in the century since. By contrast, we've had so much concern for, just as one example, over like Chinese imports, which is not necessarily or entirely coming from a capitalist basis. But you do find throughout the growth of not just industrialization, but industrial capitalism, that that profit motive exercises itself in a new and perhaps more virulent way. So I think it exacerbates probabilities in ways that hadn't existed before the capitalist marketplace really structured food production. So I, I, I'm kind of on board with the way you phrased it of the impetus for fraudulence is definitely connected to market dynamics and how people understand who they are on the open marketplace. And that too, you'll, you'll hear this a lot in my answers, that too is so in flux in the later 1800s in this period of, of wild, almost like wildcat capitalism, the origins of, of our modern capitalist marketplaces, at least in the form that we recognize them now. Yeah. It's so interesting. You and I probably were both riveted by the PBS special on food adulteration, The Poison Squad, and Harvey Wiley, who you discuss here in the book, the idea that there were people who were fighting against this adulteration. And they came up against the industrial forces that were trying to drive policy to protect profit. Of course, we see this still today. But there were policies that were put in place that would help protect the consumer in the market. And so I like to think that today we have greater protections because of those heroes in the past. I think that's true. I think what happens is the end point of this book is, is right what you were speaking to, that the Harvey Wiley story and the Poison Squad, by the way, you know, a plug for a great book called The Poison Squad by Deborah Blum, who that documentary was based on. This is from early 2020 when the show came out. She's helping narrate the what is chapter eight for me. So it's the end of my story. But it's the passage of a 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, this famous act, which most people know if they know it at all, because they think of the jungle in Upton Sinclair. Right. So they think of that kind of contamination, like that's the imagery. Because his book came out in the winter of 1906, and it was kind of like the nail in the coffin for the what they would call the pro-adulteration camp. That law is, is the basis for what becomes the FDA, for the Modern Food and Drug Administration. And right. So if we have better protections now, it is in large part because of the development of modern, that bureaucratic institution, which is meant to try to protect the entire population, as opposed to the prior generation, which had a more of a caveat emptor, policy, you know, buyer beware, just be careful, it's not on us, you just have to know what's in it. But I think the follow-up to the to that answer, without uh, rambling on, is new foods come up, new techniques occur, new manufacturing processes are developed, and new questions arise that we're always chasing down, it's, it's, we're always being outpaced, and they're not really just technical questions of, do you know what your food is, they're increasingly expanding the same forms of confusion that we find in the later 1800s of who do you believe and who do you trust? Can we trust the FDA? Are they doing a good job? Are they being boxed out by industry? Are they being tricked by imports in other countries? These kind of questions keep going on. So I think of it as like a, a game of whack-a-mole where you can knock down one contamination, 
but it's going to pop up somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And all we're left with, you know, you ask about uh, consumer capitalism, all we're left with is trying to fend it off as consumers. So the first part of my book is grounded in an agrarian world where people answered these questions about purity and adulteration based on their familiarity and experience with agrarian practices. They were part of the farmer's world. So when they were mad about adulteration, they could settle it within their regions, within their communities, as part of the life of a farmer. They had an environmental basis. But the end of the story, by the time you get to the FDA and what Harvey Wiley is pushing us towards, and amongst so many others, you know, Harvey Wiley is one of many, many, is by that point, so fewer of us are farmers, and we're becoming these modern consumers. So the way we decide whether or not we know our food or whether or not we're being tricked is based on the labels and the packaging and the grocer. It's the storefront. And we've removed our ability to understand our food through living in a agrarian society from being farmers. And that trend has only increased in the century since. Like, we are only left here in the 21st century and really throughout the 20th century to fight these fights on the consumer end of a producer-to-consumer spectrum. And really that shift happens across from the mid-1800s to the first part of the 1900s. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Benjamin Cohen, environmental historian, chair of engineering studies, and associate professor at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. We are talking about his terrific book titled Pure Adulteration, Cheating on Nature in the Age of Manufactured Food. I want to talk about this whole idea of who is really protecting us, because in my role as a consumer educator, as someone who's a health educator, as an advocate for the consumer, my feeling is that people are outraged when they find out that their food has been contaminated. We have for so long, I think, thought that if a food is sold in the supermarket, it's got to be safe. And we've got these agencies looking over us, right? We've got the EPA, we've got the USDA, and we've got the FDA. What I don't think consumers are as aware of is how much those agencies have been stifled and limited in their control. A lot of their teeth have been removed, in other words, during different administrations. And that always makes me cringe because we then go into a marketplace that is less safe. And you talk about products certainly today that we're still struggling with. I know I look at, say, honey and olive oil. We've seen stories. You mentioned China, right? The melamine in in their products that were coming over. So yes, we do need extreme vigilance. We can never rest. What do you tell your students and people that you talk to about this in terms of what can we do to help protect the safety of our food system? That's a big question. That's a a good question. That's a hard one. When I'm talking about this with students or when we're working, you know, we have a small college farm here. We do a lot of local food justice work, food security projects. Generally, what we end up talking about is that, yes, we need to reinvest and bolster the means of these agencies to be able to do the work that we built them to do, and that slowly that's been eroded or there's corporate capture. And this is over decades. It's not like something that started in 2016 or something that started in a pandemic. This is a very long process of challenges to the bureaucratic authority, so much so that bureaucracy now is a negative term, whereas it was a triumph when they founded the FDA to have a new bureau. 
let's study this. So there's all that. Like, we need to keep the agency's um, ability to keep track of these industries. But there's also the real answer for me, or what we end up doing, is trying to come up with stronger, more environmentally connected ways to understand our food so that we don't only depend on buying things in the grocery store or we have a better sense of collaboration or participation in our food system. And since we're not all going to be farmers again, like we're not going backwards when 50% of the country was farmers and now like 2% are, that's not going to be the answer. But we talk about involvement in school farms, involvement in community gardens, in farm-to-school programs, in food stands, vegetable stands, and food hubs, in community-supported agriculture, in local organic growing. These all provide opportunities for people to become more of a participant in the food system, even if they're not a farmer, rather than just an observer. Because if you're just an observer, then you have to depend on somebody else to verify for you if the food is safe or not. And I don't want to overstate that. There's only so much you can do because the industrial food system is so huge and vast. But I would like to see us move more in that direction as we think about policies and education in the coming decades. Mm-hmm. And you wrote an interesting opinion piece for the New York Times, I believe that was back in 2014, where you were talking about should FDA label natural, right? This debate has been going on for right. a long time. Nobody can decide exactly what natural means. And I think actually USDA has a stronger definition than FDA. Right. But you argue that no, we really need to stop relying so much on the label and know more about the process. I do. I do try to make that case, and I try to make that case in the book. I also always like to follow it. That I'm, I'm a pluralist, and I almost never advocate an either-or scenario. So I don't think we should ignore labels or ignore the ability to properly explain what's in a product. I think we always need to do that. I worry that the tendency is to over-rely on that, which is a product-based approach. And instead, and as with that op-ed piece, I'm forgetting the specific language of it, but I was trying to make this point, like, you can argue all you want about whether or not they should label it natural, but that is such a cultural decision. There's so much culture inside nature that I don't even know what you're going to be talking about if you decide to stamp it with a nature stamp. Right. Um, and that's that's at the center of this pure adulteration debate is people wanted to say that their food was pure or on the opposite, people wanted to claim that it was adulterated. And they were always arguing about something else. It wasn't so much just the product. It wasn't the thing at the end of the line. I have a line in there that I think pervades the whole book, and it's that trusting food means trusting people. And we need to work on the trusting people part if we want to be able to trust our food. We can't just hold out and hope that eventually this perfect pure food is going to arrive, or this perfect natural label is going to tell us that everything is good and right, because that's going to raise all kinds of other issues. Right. And I'm not prepared to answer, like, what... I'm not, nor as an agency, like, what does natural mean? We haven't done it yet in human history. I don't think we're going to solve it with an agency. You know, I'm so glad you brought up the word trust, because as I was reading this book, I thought, wow, I wonder how he feels about trust. And after learning so much about fraudulent activities in our food system, it must make you a bit more leery. It does. You asked earlier, I think the first question at the top of this is what led me to, to work on this. And I, I'll give a different answer now, which is, I think by nature, I'm always skeptical about knowledge claims. 
not because I think I know, but because I think I don't know. And that, in many ways, led me to find the story. And so I don't know if it's if I'm more leery as much as I've come to understand a little more about why I'm leery or why I'm skeptical. And it's hard to find that line, and I try to find it between skepticism and cynicism. I feel like I avoid the cynicism part, but I do carry myself or think through these systems with a skeptic's eye. Like, is, are they giving me the honest truth? Is this the genuine article? And, you know, as a backup to that, like, how do I know? Why do I trust them? Why are they credible? Where did their authority come from? Based on what conditions? Based on what evidence? Can you explain those things to me? And that's where I'll get my trust from. Mm-hmm. The epilogue of your book is The Persistence of Adulteration. And because we had talked about this idea of trust and the natural label, I can give you a, a modern-day scenario where nature or natural and, of course, the color green is on a lot of packages, as well as non-GMO. And I think that consumers, when they buy something that's natural, they don't expect it to contain residues of a very popular herbicide glyphosate, which comes from the Roundup Ready crops that are ubiquitous in our farm belt. And so I think that a lot of lawsuits have actually been successful in saying to manufacturers, even though we don't have a bona fide definition of natural, they're not so ready to put natural on that label because they fear the lawsuit that, yeah, you know, if there's a, an herbicide residue in here, we could get taken to court. Yeah. And one of the things that comes up, especially in that epilogue, I'm glad you asked about it, is the sense of natural of it's just not right or they shouldn't be doing that. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, natural, not just in the material sense, like of the environment that it comes from the environment, which I'm also on board with, but natural in that moral sense of what's the right way to do something, don't go against nature, would be an answer to that. Because that's so thorny, I want to keep asking or keep working on how we decide who gets to make that decision. Like, how do we invest our authorities with the ability to draw the line between what counts as in and what counts as out? Like, how much residue is okay or is it zero residue? Because those um, unintentional contaminations still exist, you know, 150 years later. You can think of, this isn't relevant to the glyphosate example, but, you know, like, uh, spoilage is a natural process. Mm-hmm. Foods are going to spoil. Rot and spoiling is a fundamental aspect of all organic beings. And so is the food too old and it started to spoil? And does that count as contaminated? Like that's a, a, different, a, a different kind of category. But it's still under the same umbrella of I don't think you should be selling that. You know, right. That's a sell-by date. And when you have that larger category of what are you supposed to be selling, it's hard to, it's hard to police that on a one-to-one thing. So we end up coming up with labels and we end up carrying forward our ideas of when we think there's enough intervention and when we think there's too much intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you think like that, I'm sorry, the, the, I don't know, I was good. I'm starting to the interview. I was going to ask back that, that line of like when it's too much intervention, this is something I, I speak about in the, in the epilogue of there's a line when, you know, we're always manipulating something. All agriculture is the manipulation right. of a, a non-human thing. And so we're fine in most cases, but like with the residue from Roundup 
or genes that are from a different organism, those are interventions that many people deem are, are too far. And to me, the question is, how do we decide what too far is? And do we just use science, which is one conclusion of the era of adulteration, is that purity becomes a scientific concept, something we can measure and analyze. But can we also use experience and familiarity and culture and dietary tradition and family practices? There, there are other ways to get at it, but they provide different answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that there's a big difference between intentional contamination or intentional adulteration for profit motive versus the unintentional, I won't even use the word adulteration here, I'll use the word contamination, unintended consequences of say, I always think about cookware, for example, where you might get copper in too much copper in food if you use a certain kind of cookware, or in some kind of processing where you unintentionally have an ingredient in that food that you didn't intend to. And, you know, through scientific analysis, then we can find it and we can say, okay, we got to change the methods for for the health of the public. But we've got a situation here, Dr. Cohen, where we just have like a couple of minutes left. And there's so much in your book. I want to give those minutes to you. What do you want to make sure our listeners know from your huge body of work? Oh, that is the big question. I, I'm i fascinated, or the thing that I learned the most from writing this book and doing the research was how prevalent and how dominant the cultural questions were that preceded any of the food or agricultural questions. What I mean is those questions of deception or trust or faith or doubt, those were widespread culturally at the time, and people imported those pre-existing concerns over trusting one another into the ways that they are about trusting food. And so that, you know, this is, they called it the Gilded Age, at least in U.S. history, and, and this is a Mark Twain quote, the Gilded Age, one of his books. And he meant it as like it's a it's a thin gold covering that's faking you out, that's um, hiding the true rot that exists underneath. And that sensibility of not trusting what you see, like is what you see what you get, led people on a personal level to really question all their interactions. And then the pure food debates are within that larger cultural debate. And I, I give that as my as a comment here because that to me is is timeless. Like that's what we deal with today. It's not just a, a question of the environment. It's also a question of uh, and it's not just a question of scientific analysis. It's really at the root of question of how we build these mechanisms to restore faith, to build trust, to avoid doubt, so that we feel like we can be honest people living in an honest world. And I think if we're not grappling with that, then we're not going to be able to get at these specific food issues. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a terrific book. We've got to close. We're out of time. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Benjamin Cohen, environmental historian, author of a terrific book titled Pure Adulteration, 
Cheating on Nature in the Age of Manufactured Food. He is an associate professor at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. I will provide links that show maps of how adulterated food traveled around the world. I will provide a link to his excellent websites. And I just want to thank you so much for this incredible body of work. I want to thank you for the time to talk about it. It's really, it's just, uh, really enjoyable. Thank you.